Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? We are back for another episode of Sports and Torts. Thank you all for tuning in last week, and I sure do hope you enjoyed Duncan Lloyd as much as I did. And if you missed him, you know you can always go back and listen and find all old episodes at sportsandtorts.com or at the Apple Store, Spotify, all that, all that stuff. We have another great episode lined up for y'all today. We have my friends Chris Gunnels and Luis Miranda are here. Chris has his own PI firm, and Luis is his paralegal. We share space together, and I can say these two work as fluently as any team of lawyer paralegal combo that I've ever seen. So let's find out how they do it. Let's meet them. Boys, what's up? Welcome. Thanks for having us, Josh. Thanks for having us. I've been listening to you for a while, and you do such a great job hosting this and finding cool, interesting people and us to be on here. So <laughs> this, thank this you. is the, the cherry on top, right? Uh, well, we had to travel a super far way to get here, right? We had to go all the way, what, like 10, 20 feet down the hall? I actually had to come into the office. I'm exhausted. This is why we did it, to make Chris come into the office. That's right. Friday afternoon, we are drinking a special drink, Luis, at your suggestion. Uh, so tell us, what are we drinking? What is the ingredients? You made them for us. They're delicious. We are drinking Cuba Libres made with Pampero Aniversario rum, which is a very famous Venezuelan rum. Rum is huge in Venezuela. Having him introduce that was good because neither of us can say it nearly as cool as he does. <laughs> or sound. I mean, it just sounds cool. Exactly. And it makes it taste that much better. Exactly. So, it does. It does. So we're, we're talking about, you know, pouring, putting like Coke or a soft drink with, with your drinks, which I typically don't do. Chris, you were saying you haven't done it in, in years. Um, but this is a perfect combination. It's like the right amount of sugar and you got the, the lime. which The does, lime is that zesty taste to it. It's fresh. Fresh lime. Can't beat that. Can't beat it. Can't don't don't right. use store-bought lime. Well, we're going to enjoy these. I bet we're going to have to make, ask you to make our next round because you, know, you got the perfection. So, I'm anyway, almost there. You're almost there. I love it. All right, Chris, we'll start with you. Introduce yourself. Talk about what you're doing so the people who don't know you can meet you. So my name is Chris Gunnels. I am originally from South Georgia, Brunswick, and uh, I am a personal injury lawyer. I guess I've been practicing law around 20 years now, and I started out as a defense lawyer doing uh, some med mal defense and some municipal defense, and then did some insurance defense work, some class action work, um, some construction defect work. Ended up doing four years of defending asbestos cases uh, for a subsidiary of Dow Chemicals. And I guess about eight years ago, I switched over to the plaintiff side and did four years with a friend of mine, Doug Rohan, and uh, that's where Luis and I initially got together. And a little over four years ago, we started our, our own firm, Gunnels Injury Law, and um, we have hit the ground running. COVID didn't stop us. And uh, as you know, we've shared space together for four years now, and um, we're we're uh, growing every year, which is, I think, the goal. That's the goal. Well, I love your your legal background because it's so diverse in terms of places that you've worked. I mean, Alston Bird, biggest firms out there. You've worked in-house for places. You work small firms, defense plaintiff. Like that's got to give you such a good kind of background for where you've landed now. Thankfully, I'm glad you have what you're doing personal injury work, right? I mean, you've kind of seen all different sides and now here you are being very successful in the, in the place that you have 
found as your, your calling? It's invaluable to spend time on the defense side. Uh, as glad as I am that I'm on the plaintiff side now, I would never even consider switching back. It's good to see behind the curtain of how things work when you're taking orders from an insurance company or you're taking orders from a corporation, a large corporation. Um, there's, there's a lot to be learned and it's very, very different uh, from working for individuals who in the end, you can make a difference in their lives and they're very, very thankful for what you do. Whether, whereas when you work for an insurance company, you work for a large corporation, you, you resolve a case, you do a good job and it's, it's on to the next one. Uh, there's, there's another one to be, to be handled and this is just part of the routine. And uh, you, truly, you truly are running numbers games when you're doing that work. And here we have people we get to know we get to uh, really feel like we contribute to making them whole again, and that that certainly motivates us. I have a very similar feeling and and uh, position as you do, so it's good to hear. Luis, talk about yourself, man. All right, um, Luis Miranda. I was born in Venezuela, then I lived in Mexico. My family then just landed into Marietta, Georgia. So been here, uh, went to Eastside Elementary and. Dodgin Middle School, Pope High School, so product of the East Cobb snobs over here. Go East Cobb. Go East Cobb. And then uh, UGA. Then I went into the uh, real estate default. Let me stop you right there. We're going to get there. I want to have you talk a little bit more about growing up in Venezuela, moving to Mexico at what age, and then, you know, moving to East Cobb. I mean, the middle of of nowhere, probably, of all places. So spend a little time kind of about that path. Um, Sure. Yeah, uh, lived in, in Caracas, Venezuela. Then my family moved to Monterrey, Mexico. And we were there for just one year. And my, my dad's, uh, he worked for Deloitte, big consulting company all over the world. And uh, he was gonna be placed in Atlanta where there's a, I don't know if it's the headquarters or a large office here. And they put us specifically in Marietta because there were already a couple of Venezuelan families in this area that would receive us. Was that something that your dad had the choice of or was it the employer said, this is where we're gonna you know, put you in terms of Marietta versus somewhere else? Right, my, it was suggested by the employer, uh, by Deloitte, and my dad agrees. Like, okay, this, this would be a great place. And I'm sure he did his research as to you know, the best areas in the Atlanta area. And East Cobb, one of them for sure. So you're how old when you get to East Cobb? I was 10 years old. Speak any English? Very, very little. When, when we were in Mexico, probably eight months before we moved, my dad said, okay, we're moving to the U.S., we got to learn English. So we had a private tutor come, or we went to their office, and my family, my mom and two sisters started learning English. My dad already spoke English, and he'd already spent time in the U.S. So it was, it was quite a shock getting here and taking my English to Spanish dictionary to every class and taking English as a second language classes as well. Pick it up pretty quickly though? Relatively, yeah, I, w- I would think. Uh, it took about two years, two and a half years of the English as a second language class. And then you end up at UGA. So me, and, me and you, we have a very similar kind of path. You started much further away country-wise than I did to get there, but right. you know, East Cobb schools and then uh, UGA, which you're in the band too, right? I was in the band. You know, ha- half of East Cobb goes to UGA, so it was pretty easy. I had a lot of good friends there, and then I was in the band. That was quite a unique experience to it. I was there for all four years in the band, and we got to practice Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, then Saturday, game day, and we would go uh, from Woodruff and have uh, the alumni and fans cheering us on and then 
walk over to Sanford, people would offer me drinks and wings and hot dogs and things like that. So it was, it was pretty fun. You're wearing a Georgia shirt, championship shirt. I'm wearing a Georgia shirt. Our friend Chris over here wears Bama shirt, which we have a running dialogue of Alabama versus Georgia here in the office. You've got Goldner with you that can help you out. But, Just um, a little bit. I, I made sure that I've carved out a little bit, some time of this hour. So that we can just talk about who the reigning national champion is right now and who the, right. the current number one ranked the team is The good guys. Right we'll, yeah. we'll compare overall numbers while we're talking to you. <laughs> I figured you had some response. All right. I, I cut you off when you went into the kind of work side um, mm -hmm. of your, of your uh, experience. So t tell us kind of your path to getting and joining up with Chris. Right. Uh, after graduating from UGA, it was kind of tough sledding in the job market in 2008. And uh, my, my friend Chris Schiavone, I don't know if you know, Tony Schiavone from AEW Wrestling, that's his dad. I'm a huge uh, wrestling fan. Love the show. Yes, yeah, love it. Um, and so Chris goes, I work for this law firm and they hire pretty much anybody. I said, I'm pretty much anybody, so let's go. And uh, this is real estate default and I, I was in all of their departments and loss mitigation, bankruptcies, foreclosures representing the insurance or uh, the mortgage companies. And so kind of like you guys, you know, you see you're working for the big corporations and you don't really get much satisfaction. It wasn't really my, my area. Um, but I, I felt, you know, competent. I did a good job there. I was working with really good people, but I just wasn't where I needed to be. Um, and so it really took some divine intervention to end up with Chris. I, I was praying uh, for a, a good opportunity to come my way, to have the courage to take that opportunity. And my wife and I went on a mission trip to Romania. Uh, Doug Rohan's wife, Julia, was there, and she just happened to hear that I was bilingual and that I worked for a law firm doing something. I want to frame this for a yeah. minute because I think when you have, you've told me this story several times and it strikes me as just so important on so many different levels every time I hear it. You you were in a job in a field that you like, but a job that you weren't crazy about specifically. Right. You're you're kind of looking for, for someone or something or some sign or something, you're praying about it, and you and your family decided to go on a mission trip to Romania. Right. independent of any sort of career that you might be choosing to do because Correct. that's what you wanted to do. And there you meet the person that ends up kind of leading you where you are today. That's right. Right? I mean, yeah. that's exactly what happened. Mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sorry, I cut you off, but yeah, finish yeah. your story. Um, yeah, so she goes, you, you got to meet my husband. You know, uh, he may have an opening soon, not yet. So when we get back to the U.S., email me your resume. You, we'll get back to you. Said, Great. Okay. So we get back after spending... 10 amazing days in Romania. Romania is such an amazing place. And uh, I sent her my resume and I didn't hear back. This was in July 2015. So I just, I didn't hear back and I said, well, all right, just keep putting feelers out there. Not, nothing doing with this one. And then I hear back and it was to have lunch with Doug and Chris. And we met at Wright's Gourmet Sandwiches, which is now closed. And that's very sad. <laughs> that, was, that place was so good. Yes, it was. All right, now let's hear Chris's <laughs> version of the lunch. Yeah. So, so you you're part? Are you partners with, with Doug Rand? Working with Doug? So I was I was technically of counsel. Okay. We operated as partners. Uh, he always treated me as a partner. Um, we had a paralegal who was also named Luis, and um, we just we weren't getting what we needed out of him, and um, I was frustrated and and told Doug we needed to do something different, and I guess. It was either at the same time or he, he still had Luis, this Luis's uh, resume. He said, let's go. We're going to go have lunch with this guy. And 
Um, we both had an extremely favorable impression of him. Um, he had never done any personal injury work, but uh, he was obviously very mature. He's very well-spoken. You heard the story about him you know, coming from Venezuela. He speaks better English than I do. Um, plus, you got the plus Alabama the English going. Well, I'm, I'm South Georgia. I know, as well, but now so let's I, get the Alabama. I, I have it. I have it from all over. Uh, <laughs> you know, every now and then I will I will use a slang term or phrase that Luis will say he doesn't recognize, but you know, as a, as a whole, he speaks better English than I do. Um, but anyway, we were we were really impressed with him personally. We thought he was a very mature guy. Um, we thought we could see that he would have a great work ethic, and we decided at that point that we were going to hire for the person rather than for the skill set. And that is something um, maybe I just got lucky. Maybe that's the way to do it. We'll find out that uh, to, to date it's still just Luis and me. And I don't plan on changing that anytime real soon. But um, he was he was just, we thought, a person we could train into doing this job. And um, we hired him and he uh, his employer tried to keep him um, and we we were able to convince him to come with us and um, you know when I got ready to go do my own thing I asked Luis do you want to come with me because I I knew I wasn't planning on taking an employee salary to start with but I knew I wouldn't find another Luis and uh, so I said we're I said I'm gonna start my own thing do you want to come with me and he said essentially I need to speak with my wife but yes so let's let's spend some time on that. I mean, you, you made the decision, which is hard enough, to go and start your own firm or do your own thing. And then is it okay, Luis? We've worked together for four years. We have a like you just mentioned all the, all the good stuff about your relationship. But like, how does that conversation go? And is it, um, Luis, from your perspective too? It's like this is a big decision. This is a big jump. Are we going to be okay? Can we make this work? We've got families. Like, how do how do you how do you kind of manage all those thoughts? So I, I know. And while you're talking, if you want to pour him another drink, I see that <laughs> you're low. That is getting right. kind of low. So right. you might have to give a long-winded answer to give your boy time to. Just, just to our audience here, we didn't just start with these when the podcast came on. We were drinking them during <laughs> setup. But I remember we went to a barbecue place, and I don't know if Luis had any inkling that I was going to do this. Uh, Doug and I worked well together, but. We just had very different ideas on the type of firm we wanted to run. He wanted big office space and big overhead and lots of employees. And uh, I, like you, likes, like things small. I like to take home as much of the money that I make as I can. And um, that was our that was that was what I wanted to do. So so Doug and I parted on on good terms. And so I asked. We went to lunch and I asked Luis, "I'm going to go do this. Do you want to come with me?" And it was pretty much. He didn't give me a, I'll think about it. He, he, it was a caveat that I need to make sure my wife is good with it, but. Got to check in with management. No, absolutely. And I mean, at this point, you know, Luis's wife, Katie, is family. And, um, you know, she, she doesn't do any work for the firm, but she's part of the firm. I mean, when we have looked at changing our logo, one of the people we run it by is Katie. I mean, numerous things. Um, I, I remember having a, um, a post ready for social media one time that I sent him to look at and he sent it to, uh, to Katie to look at and she, she thought, okay, this could be misinterpreted this way. So I sent it to a few other people and they said, yeah, I can see that. And so we ended up redo redoing it. So while she's not on the payroll and doesn't come into this office, Katie Miranda is a part of our team. And so um, that was, it was, I think, 
he can tell you more, but she ended up being on board because he's here. Yeah, she Louise, is much what, smarter than I am. Of course. Of course. Right? Of course. <laughs> so how did the conversation go with your wife? It, it went well um, because she trusts me, and this was another risk. You know, like leaving my, my old job to join Rohan Law, that was a risk. And, and something that we didn't take lightly, it was a big family decision. This was another one, but she, she thought that I could make that good decision for us. And, and I told her, you know, really, I work for Doug and Chris at Rohan Law, but I really work with Chris more than anything. And so with, with him leaving, um, I, I felt like I'd already built that relationship with him. And I trust him also that, that he knew he had a good vision for us. Now I've watched y'all's firm, I guess from day one almost, right? You, I mean, you, you saw us from the day from, we from set the day up. Y'all see, yeah, yeah. So I've I've kind of watched y'all's evolution, um, and what I've noticed is that y'all do almost everything kind of jointly, right? Like y'all are always kind of both involved in marketing efforts, meeting with clients, making decisions about the direction of the firm. Like, is that a deliberate thing that y'all have tried to do? I don't know that it's deliberate. It's built on trust. It is. Uh, I do very very little in this law firm that he's not involved in or does not know about or I don't run by him. Every now and then I'll do something that he's not aware of and, and uh, I think it's a surprise to him uh, and it's never intentional. It's just I'll respond to an email and forget to hit reply all or something. But he's, um, he's integral. He is the closest thing to a partner in a law firm of a non-lawyer that you will find. Um, you know, if as I was telling you when we talked last night, if you know me personally, I'm, I'm sorry, if you know me professionally, you know Luis. And, um, you know, he he has um, a lot more probably authority on a lot of things than most paralegals do. Uh, he will refer to me as his boss. I never refer to myself that way. We, we run a law firm together. That's how I see it, and that's how I want it. And you know, as we grow, if we eventually add employees, Luis will get the chance to carve out what he, what he wants his job to be because he proved to me over time that he he was I could trust him. And Luis doesn't have set hours. He doesn't have a set place he has to work. He just has to get his job done. And I know, you know, from early on, he showed me that I can give him that authority and he'll take care of it. So speak to the, the companies out there. That, that are trying to micromanaging people and not giving them the, the, the autonomy to do a good job and what that does. Because what I'm seeing from, from what I'm hearing from what I'm seeing from you is you take so much pride in your work because you do feel like you have a sense of ownership. I think and, he would yeah. like me to micromanage him more than I do, probably. Well, I don't know. Well, you got to get... I, I don't know about micromanaging, <laughs> but more sometimes oversight. a little more structure <laughs> is, is welcome. Um, I, I left a place that there was too much structure, if you will. We were micromanaged and there was little things that were very bureaucratic and, and everybody was just so uppity about what they did that coming over here, I feel like everybody that, that I know here on the plaintiff side is so laid back and they, they want to build that culture with their employees and um, I, I feel good about what I do, not just because you know, before I was representing mortgage companies, now I feel like I'm doing something for people and, and, and I feel uh, very grateful for that opportunity to help people. That That's one of the most important things about what I do, I feel like. Um, but also to, to have the, the structure that we do, even though it's not as structured sometimes as I would like it to be, I like having freedom to, to take care of the things that I need to take care of when I need to take care of them. My, my unstructuredness, if that's a word, is something that you expect. 
<laughs> so, so we've worked together long enough that, that you've said many times and told many people that, that I, Chris, am the big picture person and you are the details person. And the little of, picture person. The little Sorry. picture person. Little picture. One of the reasons it works so well is because our skill sets are so different. Luis is a very empathetic person. He likes people. He likes to talk to people. He likes meeting new people. I'm pretty introverted. Um, he jokes with me that the first thing you see on, on our website is a picture of me on the phone, and I avoid being on the phone at all costs. Uh, so he's the first line of communication when you call our law firm, and it allows me to get my work done and kind of stay more within my comfort zone, and he does a great job of that. And we get a lot of clients that come back not because of me but because of him. I'm going to pick on you and give you a compliment at the same time about you saying you're introvert. Okay. Because you told me before that – um, you have a, a fear of public speaking or did have a fear of public speaking, right? And that was something that, you know, as lawyers, like we're all kind of assumed that's something that we can do. And you worked very hard many, many, many years ago. Um, and now you're in a position where you're in front of judges, you're in front of juries, you're in front of clients. Um, I know you're, I'm proud of, of that and I know you are too. So talk a little about what you've done to overcome that. Sure. I'm, I'm not nearly as introverted as I was growing up, but um, I, I still and have very antisocial tendencies. I, I go through moments where I just don't want to talk to most people. Um, there are very few people I communicate with regularly on a almost daily basis. Luis is one of them. Um, and it doesn't just extend to work. Luis and I'll, I'll text at some point about things work related most any weekend day. Um, we're, we're just, we're friends at this point. I, I would say we're friends first that work together. Um, yes. And, but going back, you know, when I started law school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I grew up um, with a, a sports background. I went to, to college on a golf scholarship, so I had a competitive nature about me. And when I stopped playing competitive sports, I, I just didn't, I, I was looking for an outlet for that competitive nature. And um, when I got to law school, I thought maybe being a trial lawyer or, or an appellate lawyer, which is something you see more uh, initially in law school with moot court, moot court programs, I thought that appealed to the competitive side of me, but it certainly did not appeal to the introverted side of me. So um, I don't know if it's the same way everywhere, but at, at Alabama, where I went to law school, uh, the second semester, you had to do moot court, which moot court is for people that don't know, it's more like it's, it's more appellate work than trial work. So you're you're speaking to a group of um, mock judges rather than than a jury. Uh, so we had to do that, and I was really good at the brief writing side of it. I've, I've always considered myself a really good writer, and but the the speaking and the arguing and the talking, you know, on my feet and off the top of my head was as unnatural to me as, as anything I could imagine. So I, I remember my first episodes of, of arguing to a, a judge, which were either teachers or older law students in law school. I'm sure you did the same thing. And I was petrified. And I wanted to be good at it, but I wasn't. And I talked way too fast, way too fast. I, I was a speed talker. And... Uh, I just got so nervous, and if I was not, if I hadn't memorized what my argument was, I was just terrible. So yeah, I, and I appreciate that kind of admission. I'm sorry to put you on the spot like yeah. that, but I think it's important to recognize that 
we all do get afraid and nervous and starting off not knowing what we're doing, not knowing what we're doing, especially in law school. Um, but now, like you love going to trial, like that's the most excited I see you get. It's like I got this case and to hell with the insurance companies offer. Like we're going to trial and, and you do. I mean, a lot of people say that and they don't, but you guys do. So it's something that, that you've come to love. And Luis, do you enjoy going to trial too? I like it. And you mentioned having uh, different skill sets or Chris did. Um, I could never get in front of people. And I say that now, but you know, you said that one point two, I guess, but I, I, I like being the behind the scenes guy and I'm, I'm holding hands with the client and I'm with them. And, uh, during that tough process of a trial. And- so let's talk about how y'all kind of uh, delegate the tasks. And we can look at it either from like developing a case or if you want to just talk about trial. But um, both of y'all have your own set of skills, it sounds like. You know, both recognize what that is, which is which is great. So walk That's us. the most important thing is I recognize what I'm good at and where my weaknesses are and can admit that. And Luis knows knows his strengths. And, and we, especially when we get in trial, where he can help, where where he can take things off of my plate, which allows me to focus on the things that I'm good at. So from your perspective, Luis, getting prepped for a trial, mm-hmm. kind of what are you looking at? Okay, these are going to be my responsibilities. This is how I'm going to make sure that Chris is able to stand in front of the jury and do his thing, make sure the client feels comfortable. How do you look at it? That's it. I want Chris's biggest worry to be, what am I going to say in front of the jury? You know, that, That's the people that we're trying to convince to be on our side. So I want to take care of all those small details, whether it's just you know making sure the client's there on time, making sure that they're fed, making sure that Chris also eats something he typically doesn't eat during trial. So making sure that he has energy, uh, that, that's part of it. So all those little things and also the, the things like making sure that all the medical records and exhibits and everything is in order, making sure that all the video can play at trial so that Chris doesn't have to worry about that. I'm the one that, that handles all of that. His, his instruction, is when we go into trial from day one, um, I've only tried one case where Luis wasn't there, um, but his he knows that his responsibility when we go to trial is Chris doesn't work any of the technological stuff because I'm 45, it's not my generation. Uh, people of his generation, Luis, you're what, 36? 37. 37, gosh, you're getting old, man. Um, Thirty-seven. Has a beautiful head tell, of hair. Tell, I don't. I don't see a gray hair to be found. That I nice mean, beard's perfect. The, the two of you with the heads of hair you have <laughs> is really intimidating for me, by the way. Um, but uh, for those of the for those of you just listening here, Luis and Josh have the best heads of hair I've ever seen on, on another man, and, and I don't. Um, so I'm, I'm a little, blushing. Over I, here. I'm a little anxious here, but um, that's my thing. You don't, as a trial lawyer, you don't want the jury seeing you fumbling with the equipment and it makes me nervous to, to try to figure out how to put something up on a, on a big screen. So it gives me time where I can look at my notes for whatever the next witness may be or, or whatever is coming up next. And sometimes it just gives me a breather while he sets those things up. But more than anything, it's something that doesn't have to be on my mind. And another thing we've just learned through trial and error is when you try a case and say you get a lunch break or you get a 30 minute break here or there, um, I'm using it for something. I am. I'm looking at my notes. I'm looking. I'm, I'm. I'm jotting down notes on my closing, whatever it may be. And we've had occasions where we had clients that were very chatty, and they just want to talk about how it's going. And Luis knows, without me having to tell him, his job when we have those breaks is to run interference. So I can go off by myself and work on whatever it is I need to get my head straight with, and I'm not trying to deal with keeping a client happy. And that that's invaluable. 
what I'm hearing is that you're able to focus 100% of your brain power on that next witness, that next argument, that next presentation, because you know that Luis is going to make sure everything else is, is flowing properly. That's, and what, what a great kind of state of mind to be in as opposed to the opposite, which is kind of having to control the whole thing. So yeah, and, kudos to um, you, Luis. Thank you. And he's, thank you. he's super patient and people like him and he interacts well, whereas you put me in that stressful situation and a client who might be asking me a question for the third time, I'm probably going to lose lose my patience at some point and say something I regret because more than anything, because I'm nervous, I'm anxious. And, um, and he just, he takes all that away. Now, in order to get to trial means you have to have a good client and have a good case. So you've got to get that client mm -hmm. and marketing is something you guys spend a lot of time on. And we all talk about it a lot. Um, again, something that y'all jointly do together. Um, Luis, how do you look at marketing from like your position in the firm and what y'all are trying to accomplish? You know, I'll say that it's been a little tough for me because I'm not a big social media person. I'm not a big, you know, stand up and talk to people person. So Chris has had me do some videos and everything that it's not easy for me, but, you know, we make it work and trying to appeal to the Spanish speaking community and the Latinos out there. And so I've done some of our website videos in Spanish. So that, that's been pretty cool uh, to, to be able to So, of course, that. being bilingual, uh, that's a, a big benefit to a, to a client that speaks Spanish, you know, only that is afraid of, and I mean, maybe afraid is the wrong word, but maybe intimidated by right. something else. So you, you provide that comfort. You understand, they relate to you, understand, understand each other. I do, and, and a lot of times they don't understand how it works here. You know, some, some people would tell me, I came here from whichever country, and in my country, if I got in a car accident, I wouldn't have a claim. What claim? You know, I'm, I'm injured and that's it. Uh, so I, I help them navigate through that and, and they really appreciate that. Well, I will say it's more than that in that we have a lot of Hispanic clients. And with the firm that we were at before, um, the, the lead attorney, Doug, was, was bilingual. So a lot of his clients are, are Spanish only speaking or Spanish first language. And I don't speak Spanish. And so a lot of times Luis has to cover that communication gap. The last case we tried was a Spanish only speaking client that we had to try the case with a translator in court. So we've tried a number of those cases and I can't communicate with them without him. And so he has to build that rapport and that trust with them, but he's also, he also is integral in me preparing them for the trial because I don't know, or he's integral in, uh, you know, picking up when things haven't been translated correctly during trial, which happens more than you would expect. So, I mean, and the fact that people just like him. I, I, I get so many compliments on Luis and, and how much clients love him, both Spanish speakers and non-Spanish non speakers, and where I can be a, a bit more abrupt um, and, and I'm just trying to get the next thing done. He's, you know, he, he connects with them a lot better than I do, and it, it just, it, it's a, it shines a nice light on the firm. It gives the, uh, it gives people the impression of you know re really caring people when when he's um, when he's able to do that and and it really falls. It's not that I don't care. It's just more the the communication and the talking and and the patience is just within his skill set a lot more than it's within mine. So he takes that on up front and we tell everybody as soon as they're signed up, Luis is going to be the first line of communication. When you need to speak with Chris, you tell Luis, I need to speak with Chris. He's going to get you on my calendar. But they know that when they call here, the first person they're going to talk to is Luis. And uh, going back to the marketing question. So 
we opened our doors September 2018. We're kind of a, a baby law firm 2019, and then the pandemic happens. Uh, so we didn't really get to um, get involved with the community as much as we want to. That's something that we're focusing on now, especially the, the Latino community. And so we're, we're looking for ways to get more involved. So I'm not asking any trade secrets, but are there like thoughts to get into a specifically like said Latino community, like where, where they are, where they're going to be, where they're, you know, can, can learn about y'all? Is that a, a, a thought process? Is that a way to do different type of marketing? Yeah, we, we have, uh, and, and I have already some that I haven't shared with you, Chris, sure. yet. Yeah. Uh, but some contacts that, mm -hmm. that I want to reach out to that, that may help us uh, advertise in some different places. And, um, you know, you could go to um, Plaza Fiesta or some other big places. I don't know if you're familiar with Plaza Fiesta. Yeah, I am. Like a, what's of interest to me is less the specifics, more of just, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about we're not going to be my firm, y'all's firm. We're not going to be on billboards. We're not going to be on the radio. That's just not who we are, what right, we want to yeah. do. So you've got to have a niche or another way to go about it. You've got to be creative. We've both done the social media stuff. You've got to get out there that way. So I just love when, when firms can come up with kind of narrowly tailored ways to deliver what they can do to the clients they want to serve. I think you guys do a good job of that. It's really hard to figure out. Like Luis said, he's not mm -hmm. a big social media guy. I didn't have social media guy until the SEO firm that I hired for my website and to, to try to get clients off the internet said, you need to set these up. And I post a little bit on them now and they post some on them now, but it's not really my thing. And, you know, nothing drives me crazy more than these lawyers that, you know, spend, spend all day on TikTok or spend all day on, on Instagram. And, you know, lots of them, I, I, I like to say, you know, this, this lawyer couldn't find a courtroom if you drew him a map. And, um, you know, that's just, that's never who we're going to be. And when I switched over from defense side to plaintiff side, as, as you well know, these insurance companies know who, who is going to go all the way. I was never going to be a settlement lawyer. Like you, most cases will end in settlement. But if we're not getting a fair offer, we will take a case to trial. We will push a case to trial. And I was never going to be a law firm that the insurance companies would look at and say, yeah, they're going to take the top, the top offer. They're never going to go to trial. And we've shown that we're not going to do that. So that's what I, that's the image I want to project. That's what I want to show. I, I'm not about doing TikTok dances to, you know, get likes and all that kind of stuff. That's just not who I am. It's not who Luis is. And um, so it is problematic some, at some points in, um, you know, kind of what the current you know, legal, legal community is and, and how much of, of that is just what people are doing and trying to get across that, we're serious trial lawyers, and um, you know that's that's probably what keeps me up at night more than anything. And we're, we've just begun working with uh, a new group to kind of help with with marketing and and our brand and that sort of thing. And we had the first meeting on Tuesday, and Luis was prominently involved in that meeting. And, and there was there would never be a thought that he wouldn't be. Yeah, it's it is a joint effort, and. Um, you know, his, his opinion carries a lot of weight both in our cases and in how we're presenting ourselves. And I, I want to know what he thinks. He knows he can speak up at any time and um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give a lot of weight to what he thinks. Well I've enjoyed watching y'all work. I'm proud of y'all. I wanna see the trajectory continue to do what it is, which is point straight up and uh, I'll keep a front row seat, right? We're moving not too far down the road together. So appreciate y'all sharing all that stuff with, with me and everybody 
all the millions of people listening, you know, uh, y'all are also somehow able to remain such good friends, Georgia versus Alabama. Told you we were going to get there. We yeah. got to talk a little bit about it. We have we have both had to buy each other lunch on multiple occasions. Is, is, that, is, 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 is that is that is that the uh, standing bet? Yeah. So through um, football, through baseball, whatever it, it may be, we we've, we've had to do that several times, and it's one of those things where uh, you know if we get to go to lunch together, it's not really a loser in the bet. Right. It's just a matter right. of who picks up the bill. Yeah, there, there's some light ribbon going on oh, during yeah. football season. Yeah. But we have so much respect for each other, and we also we enjoy the game. We enjoy college football, and so we're able to find a lot in common. And uh, I, I'm wearing this Georgia watch. You guys can't see it, but I'm wearing this Georgia watch that Chris actually got me for Christmas one year. See, he said it was not easy to buy, not easy to buy. but he got it. <laughs> not, not easy to spend your hard-earned money on some Georgia gear. It's not, and you know, part of it is like I'm I'm horrible at some of the things I should be good at, like knowing birthdays and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm sure I've missed his birthday on more than one occasion. It's true. But I will also, you know, do things that I, I'm more about if I see something and I think Luis would love that, I, I will pick it up regardless if there's any occasion for it. So I think hopefully I redeem myself a little bit doing that. Um, but, you know, it, it's, um, it, it's something that is important to me. So today's date is October 21st. It's a Friday. Currently, Georgia is ranked number one in the country, undefeated. Go dogs! Go dogs! Uh, Alabama just lost to Tennessee. One of the best games I've ever seen, by the way. I mean, not the outcome, of course, for you, but just the back and forth. It was an insane um, game. So Alabama's ranked like I think six sixth right now. Um, got in, got Mississippi State tomorrow. You're going to the game. I am. Um, Alabama should have no problem. I don't think. Yeah, Saban's done all right with with Mike Leach. So so uh, I'll, I'll let you start. Chris, what's the forecast for the rest of this year? Because I will tell you from the outside looking in, people are wondering if Alabama and Saban have lost some miles, uh, some MPH off the fastball, as they say. You know, I think that's a legitimate question. And uh, I think it's one that that is on lots of people's mind and, and it's valid. Um, you know, in big picture, the loss on Saturday really didn't mean much. And because Alabama controls its own fate, Alabama wins the rest of its SEC uh, East games and and uh, I'm sorry, SEC West games, and they're in the SEC championship. They're going to play Georgia, they're going to play Tennessee, and they win that game. They're in the playoffs. Um, so keep winning, they're going to be in the playoffs. Uh, big picture, it didn't mean a whole lot. Big so picture, the, well, I'll, I'll challenge you on that to the extent that it took away any margin of error. I, I, I think that had, had Alabama run the table and then lost to Georgia in the SEC championship game, I guess what I'd say, or Tennessee, they still could have made the playoff. I think now a two-loss Alabama team does not make it. That's Yeah, that's absolutely legitimate. But, uh, you know, thinking about going in and losing that SEC championship game and still getting in, it's just still not really where my mind goes. Um, so you're right, but winning games went out and they're in the playoffs. And so from that perspective, whether they're ranked first or sixth really doesn't matter. I had a lot of people crowing at me when, um, when Alabama dropped from two and Georgia went to one uh, three weeks into the season. And why does it even matter? Yeah, it, who cares? It, yeah, who cares? It doesn't even matter. You know, it was um, – you, you asked me after the Texas game as I was, if I was worried. And, 
you know, I shot you a text back after the Missouri and Kent State games going, yeah, all aren't looking so good. It's, it's, it's really more. I have a tendency to open my mouth too early in the season, and then people can throw it right back at me because those text messages you send, they never go away. Yeah, it's really right? more modern college football. I mean, nobody's going to dominate every single every single week. You know, Georgia won the national championship last year, and Alabama blew them out in the SEC championship game. It's, it's when you get to that level – uh, especially of a Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State, Tennessee has got – they don't have much defense, but they sure have an offense. Um, anybody can beat anybody on, on any given day. If Georgia played Alabama right now, neither of them would win 10 out of 10. Yeah, no, that's right. Mm-hmm. So I had lunch with uh, with Andy Goldenry yesterday. Of course, we all work in the same, same space. And he was telling me that this Alabama team – I mean, you got Bryce Young, who's awesome, of course. you got Will Anderson, awesome, of course. But he's like, it's not that likable of a team – in comparison to some of y'all's prior squads. Do you you feel the same way? Is that kind of what Alabama fans are thinking? I don't know about likable. I mean, you know, Bryce Bryce Young is that dude. I mean, He's awesome. He was 80% of Alabama hanging in that game with Tennessee. And, you know, that was – it was a tough game. It was a great game to watch. Uh, I thought there were some some pretty pretty bad calls in the game, but in the end, Alabama left it in the hands of where a bad call could turn the game. You can't allow 50 points in a game. No, you can't period. allow 50 points in a game. You can't have 17 penalties in a game. And some of them were pretty questionable, but a lot of them weren't. And so um, that it was a it was a poor game. We deserved to lose that game. Um, I still feel like we play Tennessee 10 times. We're going to beat them eight. Um, we'll see. I, I mean, you know, that's speculation, but that's how I feel about it. Um, but it's a likable team, but it's it's different. And college football has changed so much. I, I was texting with friends, and at one point during that game, Alabama had third and goal from the one and passed it twice. I'm like, this is not Alabama football. This is this is not it. Um, I am not a fan of either of the coordinators of this team. Um, you know, you, it, it just it's a different. It's a different kind of football. You don't have these offensive lines that maul everybody and you can run the ball at will. It's just not college football anymore. And I kind of liked it that way, but the rule changes on the offense. I mean, defense is almost optional now. And you can you have a lot of really good teams that barely feel the defense. And I kind of hate that. It's gotten one-sided. I, I, I enjoyed the, you know, 17 to 14 games where you know it was a struggle to score rather than it's just a matter of which team is going to flinch because who, everybody's going to score every time who, they get who, the ball who gets the ball last right all right so Luis, let's give you the chance on the georgia side halfway through the season 7-0 how you feeling what you thinking what's the rest of your all look right like? that was a nice segue talking about defense because the georgia defense this year oh, he, he picked that up lunch. and ran with it didn't he <laughs> didn't have much of a drop off from last year right uh, just just pitched another shutout, second one of the year. Um, I think it's nine, just over nine points allowed per game. So that that's feeling pretty good. Just played to uh, less than opponents, but but still we look good and beat them like we should have. Uh, Stetson Bennett I think was hurt a little bit. Uh, he's getting healthier, and so I think the team's looking pretty good. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask on that note. Y'all gave up I think it was 22 to Missouri and to Kent State. Does, that doesn't the, – the team – the defense last year wouldn't have given up 22 to those teams. Agreed. You know, I mean, there's always the injury factor. Jalen mm-hmm. um, Carter has not been playing. Uh, defense has looked really good the last couple of weeks. I think the defense will be there. 
But look, when you lose five first rounders on the on that side of the ball, like no one can can recoup for that. Welcome I mean, to the club, man. We've been yeah. doing that almost the entire Saban era. I know, I, mean, I know. I mean, it's the old it's it's the old reload. And you're also getting to the point that Saban's had to deal with right now, or you know, for ten years now, that somebody's stealing your coordinators every year. Um, you know, you lost your defensive coordinator last year to to Oregon, and so you, you go through the playoffs with a a coach, a coordinator that's that's out the door. Uh, like Saban has done so many times, and some of them manage it well, and some of them don't manage it well at all. But it's a lot of turnover and a lot of inconsistency when every year you're having to implement, you know, new coaches like that. For sure. Well, I think the Georgia Alabama kind of rivalry, the, the this new tr- newfound tradition, is really cool. Um, I think that I the, love it. The, I think the fan bases respect each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the sense from you and Andy and my Alabama friends that y'all were genuinely happy. You know, at some level, that yeah. that we got ours last year. I've um, always thought, I've always wondered why Alabama and Georgia fans didn't get along better. I mean, we both despise Tennessee. We both despise Auburn. I mean, those the, as fan bases, why we 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 don't until unless we play in the SEC championship game, we don't play each other that often. So I'll tell you that from a Georgia fan's perspective, we just didn't like the fact that y'all were always kicking our ass and always were winning national championships. Well, I mean, the, that, that's what it comes down in to. In the Saban era, it's been it's a lot like people think about the Yankees. You know, it's 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 there's been so much success over a period of time that. You know, I, I, like I think, I think Saban runs a really clean team. I think his teams act well. I think they conduct themselves well. Um, but when somebody wins over and over, and you just get used to losing to somebody, you develop a, a negative opinion. And you know, Georgia's set up right now for a long run, as young as Kirby is. And and you know, the only thing that could really derail this is if he gets the itch to go to the NFL. But he's going to recruit lights out, and he's in his place where where he's shown he can win championships and. Kirby's taken the Saban blueprint and worked it to a T in Athens. And he's he's really the only one that's been able to do only it. Only able to do it. Right. That's right. And I don't see a reason why he would leave. What there's no other college job he's leaving for. No. Right? And his his kind of uh personality, his coaching technique doesn't really fly with the NFL. He's not the best X's and O's in-game mm-hmm. executioner guy. He's just the best recruiter. Yeah. He runs the, you know, him and Saban are the best programs. His roster management is second to none. And so I just see him, he just signed a 10-year deal. I see him being in Athens for a decade. And I see I see us, Luis, having a similar type of run that Alabama has been having. I, I and it's, it. a, it's a great place to I be. I can, so I'll add to the Georgia-Alabama rivalry. And uh, I was in Athens for the homecoming game against Vandy. And, and uh, we, we were those guys that we've been baking in the sun for hours and hours. We left about halfway through the fourth quarter. We went to Shokitini downtown, and we watched the rest of the Bama and Tennessee game, and when Bama lost, the whole place just erupted. And I'm like, why? We need Tennessee to lose as many games as possible. Tennessee right? would be that. a more important loss for Georgia right. than, than, than Alabama was. But, you know, I mean, going back to Kirby, it's, you know, the one of the most impressive things about Nick Saban is you go win six national championships and you wake up the day after the sixth one ready to go win the seventh one and and there's really just not a lot of complacency i mean he's 70 years old now so age catches up at some point you know you know uh, father time is undefeated but but he's gonna do it forever he's gonna do it forever if kirby goes and wins three or four the biggest thing that the georgia faithful would need to worry about is you know at some point you're going to look for a different challenge and you're going to look for a different horizon or you're just going to say 
you know, with all the money he's going to make, I'm just going to go buy a private island in the Caribbean and and put my feet up now. Because, yeah. See you later, everybody. No, college, I hear you. College football coaching is no joke. Brutal. I mean, there's you know they they're on they're online with the president of the United States and how much time they're spending working. It's it is it is an insane amount of work that those guys have to do and. You know, you have to, and, and Kirby seems to, like Saban does, is, is they love the grind. You know, some people love that daily grind, and I think Nick Saban loves the grind as much as he does the success. Right. And I can't picture Nick Saban on a pontoon boat just chilling out wearing flip-flops. I don't think he can either <laughs> for very long. You know, he had to have hip replacement surgery not too long ago, and he was laid up and couldn't move, and he said it almost drove him crazy. And... I think for an Alabama fan, that was the best thing that could have happened for us because he realizes I don't know what the hell I'd do with myself if I was retired. That's so good. All right, well, I'm excited for this continued George-Alabama rivalry. I'm excited for the continued banter at the office, and we'll see come January, whatever, 10th, 12th this year, how, yeah. how we end up. I like I like the idea of, of Alabama and Georgia playing two more times this year, which yeah. might happen. All right, switching gears because you mentioned college golf. You kind of glazed over it, but you're a college golfer, which um, – as much as I love you, the only thing I don't like about you is you have the most beautiful golf swing, and I'm just jealous. I wish I had it. Um, and I think you, hit it you far. played your best round ever playing with me one I did. Time. I did play my best round ever playing with you because I was inspired by what it is that you were doing. So, um, Did you grow up always playing golf? Like one of these pictures of you as a little boy with a glove in your hand? Not really. So my dad was a big golfer, and you know, I, I grew up like every like most kids. I played every sport. Baseball was my thing. Um, that I loved the most, and I kind of, I kind of gradually got into golf a bit. And about sixth grade, I decided to quit playing everything else and and just focus on golf. Sixth grade, okay. And I grew up at a at a a small what a lot of people would call at the time a poor man's country club. It was it was uh, an old Donald Ross course in Brunswick that um, just didn't have a lot of didn't have the money to keep it in the great shape it was, but. We had free access. It was not like a lot of these places where kids couldn't play before four o'clock or whatever. And um, so, you know, that was from sixth grade through the end of my first year of college. Golf was about all I did. I, you know, I did enough in school to get by. Uh, I wasn't really into dating and all that kind of stuff in high school. I, w I was into trying to make golf a career. So, at what point in time along that along that spectrum from sixth grade on, are you starting to like, hey, I'm shooting really good scores. I could be playing in potentially high school. I could play in college. Like, how does that, how that kind of flow? So high the, the high school was the first goal because I grew up at a, I grew up, uh, Glen Academy High School where I went in Brunswick has uh, traditionally one of the, the, one of, if not the best golf program in the state of Georgia. Um, it's the school where Davis Love played. Um, my, my high school coach won seven or eight state championships in my four years, we won two. At the at the highest level in Georgia, um, so it was something. You know, it was we we'd play schools in Savannah that they they'd send four people off their basketball team to play. I mean, just to it, field a squad. But we had we had you know pretty good players around the area where I grew up that couldn't make the team at Glen Academy. I mean, people that could regularly shoot in the seventies that wouldn't make the team. Uh, so you had to be pretty good, and so that was that was kind of the first goal and. I just gradually got better, and like everything else, I'm like being a lawyer. I'm not the smartest lawyer out there. I wasn't the smartest law student, but I was going to outwork your ass. And that's that was what I did in golf. And you, you hear Tiger talk about being a um, being a uh, driving range rat. Yeah, you know, just banging balls. Like was that you? Just after school, going over there and just hitting 
shot after shot after as shot. As soon as I could get there after school to, I mean, people, my dad would tell me, you need to play more on the course. You need to get off the driving range. Um, I would, I would take a, you know, like a builder's chalk line uh, and, and, and line one of those up on the holes of the putting green. And I'd get in trouble because I'd stand there so long that my feet would wear the grass away. And, you know, a couple days later, there would be these two footprints of dead grass. And the, the club pro would get on to me about, you know, you can't do that. That's awesome. Um, you know, I would um, I would just hit ball after ball after ball. So, and then, it, so then you're in high school, you're at this elite yeah. school, and it's like, holy cow, I might be able to play in college. It, it was. And that was, that was always a goal. And, um, you know, I played... A lot of national junior stuff, certainly a lot of uh, junior stuff around the southeast. Got a lot of opportunities um, in big high school tournaments, and you know that that's where it was. And I, I eventually got a scholarship to play at, at Valdosta State University, and uh, it was a Division two school that was 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 a top notch. I would say top three or so at the time, Division Division two school. And so I went and and I did that and. Um, you know, it was, I'll just say, a different experience in college than it was in high school. We had a much more structured program in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of just, I don't know if you say I lost the fire for it or I burned myself out, but literally sixth grade through the end of my first year of college, that was that was all I did. That was all I was interested in. You know, I, I would have people, I grew up on the coast, people say, well, let's go to the beach today. I can't go on the golf course. Um, you know, I'm not going out late on a Friday night because I'm going to be at the golf course by eight o'clock the next morning. It was literally um, pretty close to an obsession, and um, that was that was just that was just what I I did. Um, that was just what I did. Well, the good news is it's given you a skill for the rest of your life that you can be the guy that's the good golfer. Everybody wants to be the good golfer in the group. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, t- I'm just telling you the truth. Everybody yeah. wants to be the good golfer in the group. All right. So for all all of us uh, weekend warriors out there that are you know, hacking around, trying to break 80. And then we watch the PGA Tour on Sunday and we see these guys. Like, what's what's that difference between someone, you know, that plays college golf and is a scratch golfer and then trying to get through, what, Q School or like the Corn Ferry Tour or Nationwide Tour? Like, what's the difference between the guys that end up playing, you know, on Sundays there's such the PGA a, Tour? There's such a huge difference between the best guy at your local club and the middle of the pack guy on the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, which is kind of, you know, people that all know is like the minor leagues of golf. Um, you know, you've got a guy that that will go out to your normal club that's that's having trouble making cuts on the Corn Ferry Tour, that will go out to your local club and shoot 64 like it's nothing. Is it because of length? Is it putting? Is it just they make no mistakes? Is it mental? It's toughness. All, it's all of it. It's control. It's controlling the golf ball, being able to control where the golf ball goes, being able to miss it in the right place, being able to think your way around the golf course. But so much of it comes down to putting. And you've got, you look at, you watch guys on TV that you think, this guy can't make anything. And if you played with that guy on a, a, you know, just normal day at your club, you would think this guy makes everything compared to, um, to, to what your norm is. And I mean, that was my worst It's still, you've played with me. I can't putt a lick. And I was better when I did it all the time, but I, st- I was never a good putter. And that was you know thing that probably kept it from me going, trying to go further with it. But, you know, the other thing is the ability to, to take your game and move it to different courses. Like, 
you and I talked last night about um, you know a, a well-known uh, PGA pro saying on a on a show one time, yeah, you, know, you can take the best player at your club. You're a member at Indian Hills. You can take the best player at Indian Hills and put me out on this this course having not seen it. And this guy's gonna gonna hang with me. We go across the we go across the road and play a different course that he doesn't play every day. I'm gonna wear him out. And that's the thing is is you you get on an airplane, you go to California, and you need to control your distances and be able to putt and chip and everything on a course that you don't know like the game has to be able to travel any sort of setup any sort of you know length yeah yeah i get it well again man i'm jealous of your golf game it was (laughs) leave it at that it's been you know it's i've you and i've played a handful of times i play golf about twice a year now I, i when i stopped playing competitive golf i lost the interest i've never been a you know it was very serious for me i was never I'm going to go out and have a couple beers and just enjoy being out there. I'm, I'm better at just enjoying it regardless of how I play now. But when you stand over, when I stand over the golf ball, it still looks the same. It doesn't react the same any, right. anymore. And, and that, that takes a lot of the enjoyment out, out of it for me. But, you know, I've, I've, it's been fun to watch, you know, some of the people that I remember specifically playing in junior uh, tournaments with Charles Howell, Bubba Watson, Lucas Glover, you know, guys that, that have won major championships. And it's been fun to, to watch those guys. And you knew that they were different at the very beginning. Charles Howell's career earnings is something just astronomical. For, he's, he's played 20-something years for, out there. For a guy that if you followed his junior career, his professional career has been a huge disappointment. And he's not never been a guy that was going to lose his tour card. He's always made plenty of money. I think he's won three times out there. That guy won everything in junior golf everything you couldn't beat him and i think he was the first person i remember um maybe after tiger turning pro before his eligibility was up in college they do it a lot more now but you know 20 years ago that's not what you yeah, did one of the first phenoms yeah and yeah. You, you know when you when you go to the major league draft and you're a first round pick you get you know what did andrew jones son get an eight million dollar signing bonus or something you don't get that as a golfer you got to go earn it. You got to go earn it. You got to go dig it out of the dirt. And yeah, there's some sponsorship money, but not like that. Not unless dig it out of the dirt. I like that. <laughs> dig it out of the dirt. Not good not stuff, man. I, I could talk golf yeah. with you all day, but I want to make sure we give Luis a minute because he's got some hobbies too. All right. I mentioned the band. Yes. So what what did you play? Is it something you did all along? Was that a goal for yours to be at, at a, playing a band in college? Yeah. Uh, first of all, about golf, the highest level of golf I played is Top Golf. That that's all I've done. So I couldn't hang it with either of you guys. I have still not done that yet. It's fine. You like yeah. it. Um, so yeah, I was in band. That's mostly what I focused on. I didn't really play sports growing up, middle school, high school, or anything like that. And then uh, the UGA band was, you know, su- such an amazing thing. The so red coats. Memories. The red coats. Um, you have to try I, out for that. How does that work? Do you get there. There was an unofficial tryout. Okay. If, if you can be loud on your instrument, they let you in. So pretty much everybody got in. Uh, that I knew. Uh, I will say real quick that he closed the deal on a potential client one time because the client at a different point had been in had been a Red Coat band member and they were trying to decide who they were going to go with and when they talked to him and found that out about him they signed with us it's immediately. A tight it was a good case right too. There. Yeah. It was a good case. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good case. Um, we represent that guy's mom now I think. Right? Yes. Yes we do. Um, so we, we, we have some cool moments there too. Uh, I was at Neyland Stadium when Sean Jones picked up that fumble on the three-yard line. And ran all the way back. And ran it all the way back for that touch. And I was on the field. And it's such an, an amazing experience. Uh, 
going to Florida, that always lined up with our fall break. So they used to take us down to St. Augustine. We'd stay there at the La Quinta for a few days and hang out. And uh, not many people were making adult decisions back then, but it was, <laughs> it was fun. All I'm thinking about that one time at band camp. That one time at band camp, it, 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 it happened. <laughs> That was part of it, but and I never really, you know, played uh, organized sports until rec ball. Our company had uh, had a softball team. We actually won a couple of championships for the East Rothwell Park uh, League. Nice, that was pretty fun. Nice. He also has tinnitus in one of his ears, which is ringing in the ears because he got hit in the ear with the softball. With the softball, I was, I was I hit the ball up the middle, and I'm expecting you know to reach first base like no problem. And as I was getting closer, I saw the shortstop picked it up. And it was tailing it, a little bit. It tailed and it hit me right on the ear. And the, the doctor, the ER doctor said that if you're going to get hit in the head with a softball, that was the best place for it. Because that the, my ear actually softened. The so blood. it's funny that you say that because I, I played on a softball team. And last night I had a very similar experience. Luckily, the ball just missed me running to first base. Like I could hear yeah. it kind of whiz by. I woke up middle night last night kind of like sweating a little bit thinking about yeah, you go a half inch either way. Like that's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. So it's a bad I, deal. I so I'm that sorry that man. happened to you. I, I, you know, hit the ground immediately. Uh, to me, it, it was slow motion going down. I was like, oh, I got hit. Got to go down. But they told me I was just, just boom, down, just like that. Well, um, glad you're okay. And then I, later, I heard that that shortstop actually played minor league ball. Shows so you the velocity he was throwing the ball. Yeah. Out. Well, guys, this was fun. We see each other every day, all the time. But to sit down and pour some, say the way the drinks is pronounced, Cuba Libre. Cuba Libre. So you say it so much better. Than Yes. Uh, to sit and enjoy for you, though, this has been very special to me. I appreciate giving the chance to do this. Um, your law firm's website, social media stuff, let people know where they can find you guys. We are at gunnelslaw.com, and you can find everything from there. Uh, before we wrap up here, J Josh, I just want to say that um, I remember meeting you for the first time in the parking lot at Kids Are Kids. That's right. Jeff Frost Jeff introduced Frost. us. We didn't know each other. We didn't really see each other after that. Uh, we did not... Uh, know each other really at all until we started sharing space. I consider you a great friend now. Uh, you're a person who we've worked on cases together. We've done things individually together. Uh, you're a person that uh, I feel like I can I can rely on. I think with the state bar, if I were something were to happen to me, you were one of the two people that I've designated to oversee that. my cases. There's a lot of trust in that. And uh, we just uh, individually and as, as a law firm, we appreciate you, what you stand for, how you work, and um, just being a, a good person and uh, we know you we know your wife at this point and uh, really really respect you and uh, we appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast today thank you for those kind words that's really nice of you to say feel the same way about you guys um i do remember meeting you in that kids are kids parking mm -hmm. lot and it's funny the way li life works mm -hmm. right like you can never predict one year two years or five years down the road but um hey things happen for a reason i truly believe that and I'm glad that our lives have been intertwined with each other. So well, even though we don't stuff. have the same firm, I, I hope that that uh, that us and with Andy as well, we'll, we'll be in the same space for a long time. That's the plan. I we second got, everything Chris said. We got we got four or five more years coming up, <laughs> but to move December ones, we got to all update our websites with new addresses. Yes. So, yep. all right, everybody. Well, Luis, thank you. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Josh. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, you know, you got to go check out old episodes if you missed them. Uh, we've got a TikTok channel now. You mentioned TikToks. I don't do the dancing, but I do put some stuff out there called The Law Father. Uh, i got an Instagram page. Try to get things out on that way. Just, you know, kind of do things to keep it fresh. So, I anyway. Know, I know that uh, my favorite episode I've listened to is the one with Armand Deganian. And 
I know I can't rise to, to the level of entertainment that he provides both in podcast and in life in general, but uh, I hope that we at least shared something that was worth listening to. Oh, absolutely. I know everybody enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it. And that's what I tell people. It's like, I hope it, the listeners do, but really, like, I want to have fun doing this. So, you know, yeah. mission accomplished. Check the box for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you all for listening. And uh, as always, until next time, keep chopping. Keep chopping.